Hi, and welcome to episode 97 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stoljar, and today I'm bringing you my recent conversation with leading artist Jude Ray. But before I do that, I just wanted to send a quick hello to Victorians who are still in lockdown as I'm recording this. Good to see things are easing a bit and the COVID cases are coming down. Thanks for what you're doing for the rest of us and hope you're doing okay. In this episode, we are venturing deep into still-life territory, which has a rich tradition in painting history. From those skulls of the Dutch painters reminding us that one day we're all going to die, to those Cezannean apples and Margaret Preston's flowers, they say so much more than mere objects on a table. And in Australian contemporary art, you just can't go past Jude Ray for superior painting in this genre. But the subjects of Jude's still lifes aren't flowers and fruit. They range from gas cylinders to milk crates to spaghetti jars and a lot more, which she's attracted to not because of any inherent beauty, but because of the potential they present to her as a painter. And as she says, they give her work to do. Jude is a previous podcast guest, so you can hear more in episode 38 about her life and how she became an artist. This interview was spurred on by her stunning exhibition with Sydney Gallery, The Commercial, and it was called 424 to 428. And those numbers represent the titles of still life paintings, which she's numbered consecutively over her career. We met at the gallery for this interview and were sitting amongst the paintings which were hanging on concrete walls two stories high, and the works looked absolutely fabulous in that space. I'll be getting a video of Jude talking with me in the gallery onto my YouTube channel in a couple of weeks. Jude's also an amazing portraitist. She's a two-time Porsche Geach winner for portraiture and was highly commended in the Archibald Prize last year. She also creates mood-filled architectural interiors and recently both the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the High Court of Australia acquired great examples of those works. You can see images of all the works we talk about in today's conversation on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Our conversation starts off with Jude telling me what effect the pandemic has had on her day-to-day work. It didn't change my daily studio practice um, because I sort of live there. A lot of painters in Melbourne, for instance, John Catapan said he, he couldn't get to his studio even though it was just him there because you can't, it's locked down. Whereas um, it didn't affect me, I live, I live in it. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I think that the atmosphere of anxiety, you can't avoid. Uh, so I think that one is protected to some degree um, from the practicalities of the lockdown but it's sort of in the air, and I listen to too much current affairs anyway. <laughs> Joined at the hip with ABC RN, um, so yeah, it it there was an anxiety there that I was aware of. Mm. And do you think that would it come through into what compositions you were making and what objects you were choosing, or not? I I don't think so. Apart from the two. Uh, that are related compositions that came that were derived from an older work uh, to a painting from I think about 2004 or 5 that I'd made in Canberra and I'd posted uh, an image of it on Instagram because everyone was posting old work on Instagram and uh, 
I think I said, you know, I'm not sure about this, but I'm going to post this. And I looked at it and I, I wondered if I would could use it and work with it slightly differently. So I did. I emptied out half of the items um, and what you see in these two uh, paintings. I've forgotten the number. I think it's 425-426. I'll tell you what they are. Yeah, they're, four two, they're 426 and 427. Yeah. yeah. So those those are the composition which is quite spare is based on an old work that has been emptied out slightly or considerably and the idea that I was working with was that I was interested in that pared down feeling but also they're exactly the same configuration of objects and they occupy um very closely the same position on the canvas but the lighting is very different so uh, in the first one it's artificial light two globe two incandescent globes overhead which was actually the lighting I used in the original older work from 2004 and the second one was using natural light from the windows behind me and they, they're very different looking paintings oh totally and yeah, it was just a. I was saying earlier on, it's sort of like COVID isolation rabbit hole stuff. <laughs> Why did I do that? Um, but it, it is sort of a challenge. The the lighting's always a challenge for me, anyway. Um, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Whether you have a preference to art from artificial light to natural light. I used to prefer artificial light uh, because. I was trying to avoid all sorts of historical constructs in the genre of still life. So this side light is often... A natural light from the side is a standard, really, if you look at Chardin or, you know, those sorts of painters. Uh, And it has a sort of nostalgic freight that I wanted to avoid at one stage. Um, I quite like the effect of the natural light coming from behind the viewer or the painter Mirandi used it occasionally and uh, it's got this sort of caught in the headlights sort of sensation to it where it draws your attention to the the highlights and to this sort of frontality Um, whereas the artificial light you can move you know you can play around it with with it in different ways but the, the difference between a a natural light from the side and a natural light from the front, that is behind the viewer or painter, it's a very different feeling. And I'm interested in the feeling that various lighting can evoke. Um, I've often said to myself or anyone who will listen that people mostly associate feeling in painting with colour. I tend to associate it with the light so I'm I suppose more of a tonal painter and I'm very sensitive to the quality of light colour of course and I've become much more interested in colour more recently but uh, the light is really important for the sense of the feeling that you get the visual quality the, the 
the felt quality of vision is something that very is interests me a great deal. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, you know, revisiting old works and coming up with new ideas from old work. I think that's something that's really exciting for a painter. Nothing's ever finished. (laughs) (laughs) There's always something. (laughs) But you're right. I I mean, I think you can take it too far and become a little self-referential and um, maybe that's more of an issue for abstraction or non-figurative work than... I don't know, uh, it, but it's certainly it's never over. You know, it's it's the continuity is one's own practice, and um, I've often thought, oh, I'd like to get to you know do something like that. But you you've got to start from where you are, and there's really no. It's almost like you haven't got a choice in that. You can't get away from yourself, um, but the incremental sort of development in work is something that I find, I, I also find quite in, very interesting. One of the most important things I've learned over and over again in my painting life <laughs> is that the painting is not finished until it is received by someone else. Um, I realise that very practically, um, for me as a painter, it's quite important to have other people see the work, either when it's fi- certainly when it's finished, but when, even when it's underway, because when you're there and someone else is looking at your work, you see it with their eyes. It's not unrelated to Jean-Paul Sartre's idea about um, being seen to be seen, you know, it's a it's a very basic building block of 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 self consciousness of our consciousness of ourselves as as as, as individuals. Um, you see your work through the eyes of another. Is that even without them expressing anything? Yes, about it? yes. You, it it alienates you from your work in a very productive way. You know, there's a, a whole new little conversation you have in your own head. Things that you had doubts about suddenly become more, um, more in your mind, more conscious, I suppose. Uh, and and that it sounds a bit craven, I suppose, in in a way. Um, but it's not it's not a matter of of uh, painting for other people. It's it's a way of managing the the awareness that you bring to what you're doing. Um, I find it hard to describe, but but uh, I, I I suppose it comes from a really deep conviction that painting, like many other things humans do, is profoundly communicative. It's a, com- a communication, and we're social, and so just painting for yourself is fine. But if you if you're working in, a, in that very isolated way. It comes back to COVID now that I think about it. Um, it it's really important to, to, have, to share the work, I think. Well, it's interesting you should say that because, I mean, I wonder if you would paint differently if you thought nobody is ever going to see this painting. I asked, I asked myself exactly that question when I decided in my early 20s, oh, mid-20s, 
that I was going to not be an art historian, I would have been a dreadful art historian, but to, take, to start painting seriously. And I can remember writing down that in my diary, that what if nobody ever saw my work? And, you know, what if, what if I couldn't see my work? I think I, you know, I played around with a few ideas and I decided then that it was a form of communication and it had to be seen. Mm. Well, that idea that you just, you know, put your finger on, that it's not really completed until the person has seen it, does that mean that you will leave it at a point where you um, don't want to spell everything out, that you want to let the viewer connect the dots in a way? I think that's where the... It's a very important point and it's where the, um, certainly with painting, I think that it's a very powerful idea that became even more powerful after the advent of photography. So it's not a matter of documenting how things look for the record. It's a matter of documenting a raft of other things that are more complicated and multi-dimensional um, for instance how it how it feels to look at something how it feels to see uh, that that's something that is very important to me because the tactility of of the visual sense is is really powerful in painting but it's also um, yeah leaving not dotting every I and crossing every T there's an an enormous pleasure in that completion that a viewer brings, I mean, me as a viewer to someone's painting. And and from the painter's point of view, there's this wonderful, it's like a poetics of a vision in a way that um, you catch some aspect of perception in the most uh, efficient and elegant and 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 minimal way and it says something much more than just what it says you know it, um, it's, this is what poetry does with language it sort of compresses all these sensations and feelings and 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 perceptions into this a koan or whatever um, and and there is a a sense in which a lot of 19th century painting started like Degas is a perfect example um, it, it, the, and it, it continued through the work of um, Diebenkorn is another one actually um, where representation is, is part of it but um, there's also this this sense, sense of um, working with very little to say a great deal yeah. Rather than flogging it to death. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, when do you know when to stop? I mean, do you is there is there a tendency to want to keep going? Uh, certainly, it's it's one of my bets noir is um, to uh, feel that I've gone too far, and it's a constant battle between wanting to go, and there's this, and there's this, and oh, look at that, and and stopping. Yeah, well that was interesting when you were showing me, you know, an earlier um shot of one of these works, um, which is actually 
uh, SL428, where because you have in a couple of these works, you've got these amazing ferns, uh, which are quite you know spindly, I suppose is one word for it, where the you know these beautiful fronds, thin fronds, and you you know. Um, it was interesting because you had the underpainting showing through a lot more in an mm. earlier stage and you were saying how that was a quite appealing and you were tempted to leave it, but yeah. uh, you it's wouldn't be struggle. brave enough to leave it. Well, I posted it. I showed the it's on my Insta post and yeah. and I think I had an I had a comment from someone who said it'll be interesting to see how far you leave that and you know, they possibly another painter who knows the struggle of how much do you explain something or describe something and how much do you just allow it to be completed in reception? Um, and, of course, that, that gap uh, where completion is, occurs in reception often is the gap in which you are also allowed to enjoy what the painting is doing, what the paint is doing, what the surface of the canvas is doing. Mm. And um, that's another pleasure to be had, which if you go down the describe every last whisker um, road, uh, you, you close it down. And, I mean, certainly in portraiture, you close down the vivacity as well and so it's a sort of an elastic it's a continuum and you can you know move along um so that you know you can close it all down and kill something at one end or you can leave it too open and unformed and doesn't have it doesn't have the 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 intensity of connection and recognition at the other end well that that um sort of unfinished element if you like is you know you you do achieve that brilliantly with the um underpainting showing through in various sections uh in the work and that the ferns that we're talking about the underpainting is is sort of this bright burnt sienna is still sort of um showing through between those fronds which just really gives it that you know life that you you know Mm. sort of alluded to yeah but talking about the underpainting one of the um, very interesting things that you know you do in some paintings, and you've done it in every single one of these paintings, is leave a section at the bottom of the painting. So it's a strip, uh, which is sort of like about now I'm going to estimate about an eighth. <laughs> well, it varies actually, but sort of with some of them, or about a, you know something roughly about that, where the underpainting uh, shows through as a strip at the bottom. Mm. Um, can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, uh, exposing the the, the strip um, was very much part of my processing of lessons that I guess I learned from the tradition of abstraction. Um, One of the things that I've become more and more convinced of is that um, I'm not particularly convinced by or interested in the distinction between abstraction and figuration. Um, the traditions and their hist- they've got their own histories and uh, that's, I'm not denying that. It's just that every painting is an abstraction. <laughs> and what I found quite interesting was to, to approach still life in particular by 
bringing to consciousness this conversation I was having with myself about the action of painting. And uh, so the most obvious place for it to start was at the edge of the table. <laughs> so here's where the illusion stops and that's the underpainting. Um, it, was, it, it emerged slowly and in quite a sort of organic way uh, that was a, a really uh, satisfying formal device. And I just used it often either as the edge of the, the, the table and then I'd paint some underneath space or just as a little strip. Uh, and in the way it functions in the same way here, but the, the ongoing struggle with this particular interest was <laughs> how to leave leave the underpainting exposed in other areas as well yeah. and in one struggle to depict which is another important word for me in painting depiction um, in the struggle to depict uh, one <laughs> invariably loses bits of underpainting that one rather liked <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can't and, bring it back and, and you can't bring it back no you can't bring it back so it it's it's marvelous to sit and sort of see how 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 the image opens up and how the the life of the process of depiction it it's sort of like becomes aerated i mean particularly with Cezanne, it's marvelous it's it's sort of you have density and and a sort of acuity of 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 perception and description on the one hand, and yet this wonderful lightness as well, um, just extraordinary. And both in the still lifes, but also the landscapes, you can see it. Well, talking about composition, actually, um, you know, that's one of the striking things about your work because, you know, they... I always feel as though there's some sort of dialogue going on between the objects. You know, you just you always feel like that. And I just want, with particularly with four two six and four two seven, which we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, you have three objects in that, which uh, two are together. You know, overlapping more or less, and then you have one to the right on its own. Um, do you yourself, when you're, you know. Uh, setting up that still life think about what it is saying in that way or do you are you do you feel that that it is making some comment about you know well for example you know the one on the right it looks so isolated you know and the other two are a couple you know I mean on a very basic level that sort of feeling of you know relationships do you feel there are relationships between the objects I think you'd be silly not to acknowledge the tendency to anthropomorphize things. Uh, certainly Mirandi's work has always been heavily anthropomorphized and um, but I don't start out with that idea. I don't start out with any idea and I think this comes back to what I was trying to I've sort of try and say about um, the, what it feels like to see. The, the feeling you get from things is not just... It's not just the physical sensation of looking at the textures of things, uh, which 
painting has long been enamoured of, you know, painting fur and silk and, you know, all sorts of different textures or rocks, whatever. Um, but it's also the, the feelings that you get from not just um, the distribution of objects in these paintings, for instance, but the feeling you get from formal relationships so I saw this sensation of harmony or a sensation of um, uh, movement or, or the sensation of that yellow gourd vase being out on its own, yeah. <laughs> which is not that in that particular composition. That's, that's just the residue of the original composition from which these derive. That's a good point, actually, because so you took out... Yeah, yeah. Would... I, did, I did remove three of the six original objects, um, but in the original painting, and I, can't, I think it's 189, um, the Gordvard wasn't on its own. It had some little friends around. <laughs> you're right. You're right. So well, it's not. So in a way, composing that painting was as the result of subtracting. Yes, exactly. Yes, actually, subtra- subtraction is always really important. Um, I, I more often remove things from an initial composition than add them in. Uh, don't know why. I think probably less is more. But <laughs> but. Um, the that, that what it feels like, what the configuration of things feels like, not necessarily to do with a heavily anthropomorphized sort of interpretation, but more just sensations of balance and configurations that make us feel more or less, I don't know, some way or another. Um, mm. And, and it, where the horizon line might be, which implies, of course, a point of view and that locates the viewer. I mean, there are all these, it's incredibly complex. And what I, I guess is one of the enduring fascinations of painting is how, for me, is how, you, you, you know, these, these, uh, this array is incredibly complicated array of human perceptions not just vision but through vision um, and vision's relationship to other senses like specifically touch because touch in painting is incredibly important how the paint goes on is is we're intensely aware of it even though you don't know you know you you get a feeling from how the paint has been put on the canvas would you start with a drawing more frequently now i do um i used to just sort of plunge into it and then move stuff around and I paint standing now. Um, I used to be sitting down for a lower viewpoint. I've altered the configuration of my still life painting studio so that I can paint standing up, which is much easier on your back. Well, it's hard on your back for different reasons. But um, I, (laughs) when I was painting a lot sitting down, oh, 
sit down, look at it, get up, move it half an inch to the left, sit down, <laughs> look at it, get up, move it to half an inch to the right. <laughs> it's drive you mad. I'd spend a whole afternoon doing that and oh, then I'd yeah. have to change it all again the next day. <laughs> but that, that had a lot to do with me refining my... Um, the parameters of my formal, my sensitivities to formal configurations, which is sort of endless, um, and and one of the the fascinations about still life painting, apart from the way it slips between abstract and representational traditions, um, is that it um, provides a very limited set of formal possibilities which sort of it's like going through the eye of a needle and coming out the other side because as you as as it as you you impose more and more limitations somehow it opens out into some new vistas of subtlety you know so um what sort of limitations are you talking about oh well i can remember somebody saying when are you going to let go of the tabletop? <laughs> well, also, congratulations on um, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and its great wisdom acquired one of your architectural interiors, which was one of my favourites, Interior 370 Foyer 1. And it actually, I remember when I interviewed you back in 2017, it was on the easel when, when oh, I came yes. over. And I th- when I heard that, you know, the art gallery acquired, I thought, yes, that was... Because it really did, you know, I remember walking into your studio and just being blown away by that painting. Um, and I think Michael Brand loved it because he, he put it on his Instagram and he said about it that it was an evocation of the in-betweenness of the public foyer, both visual and psychological. And I thought that was such an interesting point about it. Yes, I, um, I didn't know he posted on Instagram. I have to go and have a look. Uh, he, yes, that's a really that's – a, it's a very particular um, attribute of that space which is a is is i'm not sure that liminal maybe the right word it's it's a space that people move through and that light moves through uh, in very markedly different ways at different times of day and um yeah it was really interesting you know going to europe and looking at various architectural wonders and then coming home and um and finding I had a I, I had an appointment that I would often go to at that at a particular time of day, and I was going through the um, it's called Liberty Place between Pitt Street and Castlereagh Streets, and um, uh, the light was extraordinary. Just everything. I, I started hanging around. <laughs> making little drawings and then taking photographs which was at that time um, they it wasn't well received at all because of the um, all sorts of terror anxieties that we had um, and even a middle-aged white lady taking photographs of a public space 
Um, and it was the it's also the ANZ bank foyer as well. It probably oh, right. didn't help. Either. Yeah, right. Just casing the joint. <laughs> I know you sort of you feel uncomfortable taking photos in public these days. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, although yeah, it's sort of changed a bit now. We sort of don't worry about terrorism anymore. We're now worried about you know viruses. Oh yes, I think it's so many different things to worry about. <laughs> That's right. But with that painting. Um, you know, I mean, if people haven't seen it, it's a very it's it's there's a lot of glass in it. Like there's a huge glass windows, and and the the surface of the floor that it's you know the light is is coming in on top of is is reflecting. So there's a lot of reflection. Mm. There's a lot of light. Um, so um, you know, and that's obviously light is something that you've you've always been interested in. But in these architectural works, it's sort of slightly different to the still life, isn't it? Yes, and that was um, a real spatial shift for me. Um, <laughs> I used to, I started out making interiors, painting large interiors of airport spaces, and um, it was to do with the uh, way reflections enliven the not enliven, it was to do with the way um, reflections complicated the sense of the spatial sense and the formal opportunities that that offered. Um, So lots of sort of repeated orthogonals, um, which I quite like as a sort of structuring device in a painting which picks up the edges, obviously, uh, and gives an underlying grid uh, that you can then push around. Um, what is an orthogonal? Oh, right, right angles. Oh, so, okay. you know, just right. sort of horizontals and verticals, which gives you a grid. Um, and uh, the. <laughs> I used to think of the. Um, it, it occurred to me that the paintings of the airports that I was making was all about me approaching landscape sideways you know so it's like a diff- I because I, I don't really like outside this is why I'm a, a still life painter I like sitting quietly in a room by myself <laughs> <laughs> a room of my own as it were um and so and yeah the landscape's interesting but I'd like to look at it through this grid yeah, you know on yeah, the other yeah. side where it's safe inside um yeah I get that. I don't know how much it's just one's personality Um, But the Liberty Place foyer, and I can't think of the architects to acknowledge them, uh, the name of the architects, although I do on my my website and my Instagram, I think I, I, it it was, it's a particular firm of Sydney architects. And it really is the most extraordinary interior space. It's quite space age, actually, with these great sweeping curves of limestone staircase and this huge um, multi-level frosted glass looking out onto Pitt Street, which at the time of day that um, I encountered it, um, there were these shadows from the buildings on the other side of the road. And one in particular was um, the the top of a 19th century building that had the sort of a finial, you know, how they have these little decorative um, elements on the, the, the 
top of the buildings and it, it, it's anthropomorphic. It looks like a head. Mm. And so you've got this sort of 21st century looking um, architectural interior with the shadow of the 19th century being projected on the fa- facade. It was just, it was just marvellous sort of confluence of, of different elements um, in this highly reflective environment. And, and it, it offered also an interesting, new interesting set of chromatic variables for me to work with as well. Mm. Um, the, the range of, of um, tonal contrast was bigger than one would find in an, in an airport, for instance, because there's just a lot of light in airports. Um, so, yeah, it, it, trawling through my photographs that I brought back from Europe, uh, I suddenly found, you know, on my doorstep, you know. And it, I like that too. I like the idea that, that perhaps we, we work with what's around us, which is, a, interestingly, since COVID, this, is, this has become an issue, you know. Maybe we should just look at what we have, looking at our own environment. And, and I think this is where still life also comes, became important when I... I I like this idea of, of, of working with something that is there, that is just in my vicinity, and making something of it. Well, you've certainly made something of it in this body of work, Jude, and I really appreciate your time today in telling me about it. Thank you, Maria. A pleasure. What a fascinating artist. It was so great to catch up with Jude Ray. I'll be getting that video online soon, so watch out for that. You can also find an earlier video I took of Jude in her studio from 2017 on the YouTube channel. So just Google Talking with Painters YouTube and you should be able to get to my channel that way or else I'll put also put a link on the website. Also, as many of you in Australia would know, the finalists of the Archibald Wynn and Sulman Prizes at the Art Gallery of New South Wales were announced a few days ago, and I had mentioned in the last episode that I'd be there in person on the 25th of September for the winner's announcement. At this stage, it's unclear what's going ahead on that day, but I suspect that due to COVID, it might be done remotely. So I'll keep you advised on social media as to what's happening on that day. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Uh, you know, I don't I I start off with a composition, uh, but I don't want to feel that I can't change it. Um, because when you've got a blank canvas in front of you or an open canvas in front of you, you um, you don't really get a sense of things until you start putting paint on. Well, that's my experience. <laughs>